All right. Let me um, just re- review for you briefly what we've kind of done. If, if you have not uh, been a part of all of the classes, if you have one of the handouts, you can kind of see I tried to break down what we've done in each class on the front page so far and then over to the back. Our first class together, we just did an overview of Job. We just tried to introduce the book to ourselves a little bit more. Who wrote it? Job did, we believe. When and where did he live? He's, he dates back to the patriarchal period because his lifespan is long. It matches more like the lifespan of Terah, Abraham's father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who all live closer to 200 years of age. Um, a structure and summary of Job we've talked about. Really, the, what you find is you have, you have two chapters of introduction at the beginning, and then you've got a chapter at the end that kind of summarizes things, and everything in the middle is just this really long speech section between Job and his friends, and then finally God speaks. And the way that you understand what's going on in those speeches is by knowing what happened in chapters one and two. It's very important. We talked about where Job sits in the rest of your Bible, in the wisdom section in the Old Testament, at the beginning, Job, and then Psalms, and then Proverbs, etc. One more class to go. I think we're just going to be looking at what I'll call realities to face in the scene of suffering. Some um, things that you're just going to face, realities that are going to pop up in your own scene of suffering, or if you're a counselor stepping into somebody's suffering or trial. The second and third classes, we talked about the special purpose and place of Job in your Bible, um, and particularly that that Job provides early gospel anticipations. Job is not just a book on how to suffer. There's something much deeper before that that takes place with Job. It's, It's giving you categories to start thinking about an innocent and righteous one who is coming who will suffer in an undeserved fashion beyond anything you could imagine. Job's suffering was indescribable. It was excruciating. It was amazing in the worst possible way. And yet it pales in comparison to the innocent one who suffered the wrath of God in his eternal being on a cross for a matter of hours in an afternoon so that you and I would have our penalty paid. Uh, It gives all kinds of categories very early on. If Job dates back to the the period of Abraham or so, God is starting to give his believers categories to start thinking about things. The way that I liken it is like when somebody grabs you from the shoulders behind and is trying to point you to something that's coming. No, no, turn you here and they point over and they say, look, look there. That's what Job is doing. Job is, God is taking you and and orienting you to look in a direction where greater revelation is going to come of an innocent one who will suffer greatly. Um, And we gave you seven different gospel anticipations there. And then if you turn over to your other side, we talked about four concerns in the scene of suffering. The things to concern yourself with at the scene of suffering. We've covered two of them. I'll review one and two this morning here just briefly. One of the things you need to be concerned about when you are suffering or if you're in a deep trial or if you're trying to help somebody get through a trial is to think about this. Are we concerned about character? And primarily God's character above all. Um, And then after God's character, of course, our own character. Um, Whether you are the sufferer or you're the counselor, 
God made it very clear that his character could not be um, mishandled. Uh, when you get to chapter 42, he is, or even before that, he is, uh, he is rebuking Job for the way that Job thought about him, how he slighted God's character through the things that he said and through his attitude. And then he is also wanting to restore Job's friends. He, he says that his wrath is kindled because you did not speak of me rightly. Um, and so God's character in the, at the scene of suffering needs to be protected. It needs to be defended. It needs to be affirmed. It needs to be meditated on. But also, um, God made it very clear at the first two chapters uh, how important Job's character was before suffering ever came on. Once the suffering hit, his character mattered. God says he did not, in all this, Job did not sin with his mouth. And at the end of the book, God is concerned to restore Job and bring him to repentance. So all throughout the whole book, God's concern is, 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 for, is for Job's character. And the way we talked about, those two characters are linked. You, you need to be able to defend and, and um, maintain your own character by first defending and maintaining God's character, thinking rightly about who he is. Think about this. It is impossible to think wrong thoughts about God and not affect your own character because the minute you do that, you've just ruined your own character. Okay? So the way to defend your own character and to maintain your own holiness of life is to think right thoughts about God. And then we talked about, are you concerned to comfort the sufferer? To comfort the sufferer. What unfortunately stands out from the book of Job um, was the heart is the heartbreaking truth that Job was actually never really comforted by his friends in his intense suffering. Now, we then talked about there were two things that Job needed. Job needed correction. He did. Job didn't, was not thinking clearly, completely about who God was. He was saying things that were not true. He was drawing conclusions about God. He was making God become the defender in the courtroom. And, and Job needed to be corrected. But Job also needed to be comforted. And Job's friends, not just in one round, not just in one chapter, but over 28 chapters or so, um, failed to comfort him. They became so zealous to correct him that they lost sight of comforting him. And that's tragic. Um, and, and, what, and those two things are not pitted against each other by God at all. Um, if the, the message from the book of Job is not, you know, we should actually really comfort each other more and be less concerned to correct each other. That is not the message of Job. The message from your Bible is you're going to need both of those at your scene of suffering when you are in, under intense trial and adverse situations and pain. You will need to be corrected and you will need to be comforted. The point of the book of Job is never lose sight of comforting because you're just so zealous to correct. Even wrong thinkers who are suffering need comforting. So comfort them. Don't lose sight of that. Um, and God will help you to learn how to correct them as well. And, and you need to learn how to be correctable um, if you were in your own trial. All right, so now, oh, let me show you one verse. Uh, go to Job chapter 6, verse 14. I'm going to show you how... Uh, character and comfort, how Job thought these two things were together in his own mind, inseparable. We looked at it last week, but I just want to re review it for you. Job 6, verse 14. 
Here's what he said early on to his friends. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. You know, you hate to be the suffering guy, the guy who's suffering, and tell your comforters that. There, actually, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. There should be kindness from you. There needs to be comfort. There needs to be kindness. There needs to be compassion towards the one who's suffering. But for what purpose? Look what he says. So that the one who's suffering does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. So do not... Do you want your friend to hold tight to the character of God as he is suffering or she is suffering? You might be able to get to that by comforting them, by showing them kindness so that they don't forsake the fear of God. That's a very precious truth that Job has a moment of clarity on uh, in, this, in, in that speech section. All right, let's go to number three. Here's a, a third thing for you to concern yourself with at the scene of suffering. Are you concerned to control yourselves? If you didn't notice, I'm giving you C words. Character, comfort, control, primarily self-control. I think the more you read and become familiar with the book of Job, the more you'll see how difficult it was for Job to control himself in two directions, vertically towards God and how he thought about God, and then horizontally between friends. It's very difficult for them to control themselves towards each other. At the scene of suffering, we need to concern ourselves with control, self-control, both vertically and horizontally. Let's talk about vertical self-control first, controlling yourself toward God at the scene of suffering. Go to chapter 7 and look at verse 11. Job is just going to say it out loud. Here's, here's Job, chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I'm just, Job's just laying it out there. I'm not going to restrain my mouth. I'm not going to control my mouth. Um, I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Obviously, some spiritual wisdom and maturity is required when you're at the scene of suffering. It is important to pour out your heart in honest prayer to God. God desires that. He is not afraid of your complaint. Just read the Psalms. David is not afraid to use that word complaint, but that requires spiritual maturity so that it does not become an unrestrained opening without a control valve on it. And self-control is the valve. There is room at the scene of suffering for complaint, but it is regulated by self-control and the fear of God. You can't just say anything you want. Anytime, ever. There needs to be self-control. And here was the dilemma for Job. Go over to chapter 16, verse 6. This is another part of the speech section after another round of speeches has taken place from his friends. Job 16, verse 6. Here's the, here was the reality for Job. If I speak, my pain is not lessened. When I open my mouth and I just let it go, my pain does not change. What happens if he chooses to keep his mouth closed? And if I hold back, what has left me? What, what if my suffering has gone away? Nothing. Job was in this horrible position that if he opened his mouth, it didn't lessen his pain. If he closed his mouth, none of his pain left him. And so what did Job do? choose? Obviously, Job chose to become a noisy sufferer. Um, whether Job 
spoke what was venting out from his heart or whether he held himself to be silent, nothing concerning his discomfort and pain changed. So he became that noisy sufferer. You know what? Think of this. What would the book of Job be if Job had chosen just to remain silent? A pamphlet. It would be a pamphlet. It would not be 42 chapters long. But look what God did. God let us not have a pamphlet on it because you wouldn't be convinced that there was just like a page or two and he was just quiet. You would go, yeah, and that, that just makes it look so easy. No, you get 42 chapters of this. Um, of, of deep suffering and a lot of words coming out. Let's see what Job thinks about controlling himself toward God once he has repented. This is so precious for God to include this. Go to Job chapter 40, verse 4. Watch this. This is so important. This is what Job thinks about self-control once he has repented. Verse 4 of chapter 40. So God has come to him at this point and has confronted Job, asked him all of those rhetorical, where were you? Can you? Do you know how? Do you do this? Can you say this? Can you think that? Can you control this? And Job's every answer was, no, 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 I I can't. I don't know how. I don't know what you're talking about. Never been there. Can't see that. Um, And he was just humbled. What does he say? Verse four, behold, I am significant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That's repentance. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice I will add nothing more. Okay, that's quite a difference from Job 7 verse 11. Here he is saying in repentance, I lay my hand on my mouth. And in Job 7 verse 11, he said, I will not restrain my mouth. So in repentance, Job reached self-control, vertical self-control. I have said enough, he says. I have spoken too much, in fact. Now go over to Job chapter 42, verse 3. God will give him one more sermon or speech, and Job will respond one more time in repentance. And here it is in 42, verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job says he's repeating a question that God asked him. God originally asked him this. Who is this who's hiding counsel and, um, without knowledge? Uh, that Job's like, that would be me, I guess. Um, here's what he says. Who is this? I have declared that which I did not understand. I declared things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. This is an expression of uh, repentance in Job. I declared that which I didn't understand. I could not control myself earlier in my suffering. I could not control myself from venturing into an arena of things that I did not know about God. And I spoke about those things that I did not know about God. I could not refrain. I could not refrain from pontificating there about what I didn't know about God. And he's repenting now of that. And he calls him, he says, I I talked about things too wonderful to me. No, wait a minute. Things too wonderful for me? Is that how he sounded back in his suffering? Did it sound earlier like the things that Job did not understand about God, he saw them as wonderful back then? No. So what has happened to Job? He's he's repented. He's, He's been transformed. It's precious. The things that I didn't know before that I railed against you about God, now they're wonderful. 
These things I didn't know are wonderful. Indeed, a change has come over Job. What an expression of repentance and self-control vertically. So, in your suffering, at the scene of suffering, whether you are the sufferer or the the counselor in your suffering, as you watch your friend suffer, as you watch your spouse suffer, as you watch your child suffer, as you watch your parent suffer, will you be curious about things you don't know about God? Yeah, we all will. What, what is he doing? What is he not doing? Why is he not doing anything in my suffering? Well, what do we get to learn from Job? Control yourself to stay within the bounds of what you do know about God at the scene of suffering. Control yourself to stay in the bounds of what you do know about him. And here is the great thing about God. Each one of his attributes, whatever it is that you learn first about God, and if that is the only thing you know, that one thing that you just have a sliver of is so, a sliver of God about, is so inexhaustible, and it is so sufficient that even if you don't know very much about God yet, you can be safeguarded by what you do know and satisfied focusing on what you do know. Let me give you a, a, the supreme, one of the supreme examples in Scripture. There was a guy suffering horribly, excruciating pain, and he was next to Jesus on a cross himself, and he didn't know squat about God, and what he did know held him through broken legs and finally suffocating to death and being in the presence of Jesus that day in paradise. What he knew about God wasn't much, was it? But it was enough. You know right now, you know far more than the thief on the cross ever knew in his life. And it was enough for him through a suffering that you will probably never go through. Praise God. And it held him and it was true and it was deep. It wasn't much, but it was deep. So listen, control yourself. We need to control ourselves to what we already do know about God. It is deep. Don't venture off into places that you don't know. That doesn't mean you can't learn more about God in your suffering. Of course, we must do that too. But to become so curious where we start doing what Job did with God and speaking about things we didn't understand, we need to be very careful and controlled. What can you do if, if you're a counselor helping somebody who you think is doing that? One of the simple things you can do is just redirect them. Hey, let's, let's do this instead. Let's, let's make a list of all the things that we do know about God. And let, let's just think on those things. That would be a huge blessing. It would be a safeguard for the one who may think, well, I'm kind of tired of those things. I've thought about those things. You haven't thought enough about them yet. Let's think some more. I can tell you that even in my own trials this past year in my own life, another way that has been difficult to have self-control about what God is doing and what is, he is not doing is it's difficult to re, it has been difficult for me to refrain myself from thinking about the worst that could happen and could come in the days ahead. And so what I would do in today is I would import my worst imagination possible into the moment and start thinking I need to make decisions about my life. Don't do that. <laughs> Control yourself. 
Um, there's all kinds of need, and I've, I was surrounded by good friends to help me with that, and a, a dear, precious wife who was suffering her own um, difficulties to help me do that. Controlling yourself towards each other. Let's talk about horizontal control. Let's look and see what Job helps us in regards to that. Go back to Job 11, verse 2. Job 11, verse 2. Zophar is ready to respond to Job. Here's what he says. Then Job responded, is that nice? That's chapter 12. Uh, verse 11. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? You have to read it with attitude when you... You've got to... It's interpretive, I know, but that's just what I hear when I, when I see those words from Zophar after everything Job just said. Zophar couldn't help but notice what? That Job did not restrain his mouth. That, that Job let a... A Niagara Falls portion of words come out. And here's the sad but honest truth. It really bugged Zophar that he did that. It bugged Zophar that Job just let his mouth run. It annoyed him. And Zophar then cannot control himself and feels that he has to shut down Job. And so here's the classic. You got a splinter in your eye and there's a log in an eye. And here's the classic, your, self, your lack of self-control bugs me to no end, and I have no self-control myself, but I'm going to let you have it. Here's what's going on. It's really a sad, sad scene. Suffer, the, 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 the one who's in the trial, the one experiencing the adversity, listen, you, you may give voice and words to everything you're thinking, everything you're feeling, you, will may, you may want to put to words everything you've been lamenting, everything you're fearing, everything you're wishing, everything you're hoping. You may talk a lot. You may write a lot. You may email a lot. You may text a lot. Perhaps more than is necessary. And you may not even realize it. And you may need some help. Counselor, if you're the one sitting with somebody and they're doing that, you may grow impatient with that. With the endless barrage of words coming from the sufferer, and self-control is greatly needed by both parties, is it not? Or the scene descends into something really awful. Let me illustrate this with something else in Job here. Chapter 18, verse 2. Bildad gets to speak again and confront Job. Look what he says, chapter 18, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, How long, Job, will you hunt for words? Bildad sees Job as a hunter. He's hunting for words, and Job will find them. No, Job has found them. Even if the words are hiding from Job, Job will track them down. He'll capture those words. He'll tame those words, and he'll use them for his complaint. That's how he thinks of Job. At the scene of suffering, it is possible that the sufferer will have this heightened sensitivity about what's going on, about what they're feeling, about what they're fearing, about what, what, is, what they're afraid of. 
Vivid details may come out of every square inch of their scene of suffering that you didn't even consider. I think a way to to think about it would be like this. Um, A breeze of pain, a, a breeze of adversity, a breeze of trouble may get described with a hurricane force of words by the one who's suffering. Do you understand that illustration? It's a breeze of adversity. It's a breeze of a trial, but a hurricane force of words comes out to describe it. Well, what does that make it sound like what's going on? That it's far worse than it is. And you know what? It might be that bad. But you have to be aware that this can happen at the scene of suffering. So maybe Job lacked self-control in the amount of words he used to express the venting of his heart. But he also lacked it in expressing his disagreement with his friends because he disagreed in such an offensive way. It's not just he disagreed and used a ton of words towards them. It's the way he spoke to them. And look how Bildad, let's continue on in chapter 18, verse 3. Notice um, how Bildad heard the kinds of things that Job was saying. Um, Show understanding and then we can talk. Listen, when you get wise, then we'll have a conversation. Okay, this is a guy who lost his kids, lost all of his possessions. His skin is peeling off his body. He is a mess. His wife just wants him to curse God and die. And his friend just said to him, hey, when you wise up, we'll talk. What a sad scene, is it not? We would never do this, I'm sure. But what a sad scene. Why are we regarded as beasts? Why are we regarded as stupid in your eyes? Now, why did he feel stupid in Job's eyes? Because Job basically said, you're stupid in my eyes. That's the way he referred back to them. Oh, you who tear yourself in anger. For your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be removed from its place. Okay, now at this point, Bildad is lacking self-control in his response to Job. This is just not helpful dialogue at the scene of suffering. Bildad feels stupid because of what Job has said about him and his other two friends. We're as dumb as beasts. Bildad is offended, and he believes Job thinks far too highly of himself. And you know what? Job probably thinks more highly of himself than he ought. The whole earth is to shift its course for you, Job? Is that how big you think you are? That earth is not big enough to house and hold and support your suffering and your logic, and so the whole earth needs to shift and be moved for you, his friend says to the one suffering. Earth is an insufficient place to host Job and his suffering. Counselor, listen. The scene of suffering should never descend down into a duel of criticisms and quarrels. Self-control is needed. There's a duel of sarcasms going on. There's a duel of personal jabs being, uh, going on back and forth. And Satan must be laughing and God is facepalming his kids. Go to chapter 20, verse 2. Zophar again. Here's how um, 
difficult it is to choose self-control at the scene of suffering. Look at this. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Therefore my disquieting thoughts make me respond. I'm being made to respond now. I don't, I, I'm not, this is out of my control. I'm just, I have to respond. I'm being made to respond even because of my inward agitation. I listen to the reproof which insults me and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. Suffer again, you may not realize how much you're describing, how much you're sharing at times. You may not realize how you sound when you do that. No one has, for the, for the one who's suffering, the one who's going through a difficult trial, there's been no one more alone with their own thoughts in that suffering or in that trial than that person. They sit with their thoughts all day, all night, and they run them over and over and over and over, and they turn it, and then they rotate it, and they turn it, and every, every minor turn they turn, you didn't even see them move it, but they've got a whole other page to write. Not everybody is that way, but a lot of us are that way. We turn our suffering over and over, our trial over and over in our heads in ways that nobody else has even considered. And when your friend or your counselor comes over, you finally get to tell them everything. And you may not like how your counselor just can't appreciate what you've been thinking. how he or she just can't catch up and connect with what you're saying. It's plain as day to you. You've thought about this for days on end. And this is where self-control is just greatly needed on both sides. Being self-controlled at the scene of suffering does not mean you must be completely silent in your suffering. That's not what's being talked about here. But it also does not mean you need to give a blow-by-blow account of every square inch of everything that you've thought, wondered, felt, or feared in your trial or in your suffering. Counselor, friend, if that does happen, if that's what you experience from the one you're trying to comfort, take it with a grain of salt. Just take it with a grain of salt. Listen wisely, be patient, and don't feel like you've got to respond to everything that they're saying. Tell your suffering friend you, you want some time to think about what they said. I, I need to, I, I want to, I want to give some thought to that. Because you know what might happen? Perhaps tomorrow your suffering friend will take back his complaint and say, I, I, I regret what I said. I thought about it. Yeah, that, that's not right. And you didn't even have to say a word to bring him around. So don't unnecessarily force a misunderstanding from your suffering friend's many words by quickly responding with your own words that you haven't thought carefully through. Because you may just end up inflaming a situation that would have died out on its own in less than a day. By the way, there's one who did the best at self-control in the book of Job. Do you know who? Who did the best? And it's not God. Okay. Jesus... Right? No, it was Elihu. You know why? Because he was quiet for the longest. 
right? You can read uh, chapter 32, uh, write that down, Job 32, verses 5 to 7. It's, he, he talks about how, I thought I should be quiet. I thought I should listen. You guys are the old guys. You're the wise one. I thought I should be quiet. And then he finally says, but I can't be quiet anymore. And then he just goes, too, and lets it all out. So you should be concerned about character. You should be concerned about comfort. You should be concerned about control, self-control. One more. Are you concerned about your confidence, your confidence, and I'll explain what I mean by this. The speeches section of Job um, between his, he and his three friends, uh, chapters 3 to 31, that is a petri dish of fast multiplying confidences. Man, there's a lot of confidence going on in those speeches. It is an overgrown garden of confidences. The, the confidence weeds are, are just going everywhere. Job sounds very, very confident in all that he says about God and about his friends. And Job's friends in rebuttal sound very, very confident in all that they say about God and their friend Job. So what are we to make of all of this confidence at the scene of suffering? In Job's repentance, what does he make of his prior confidences? That's a good question to think about. What does he think of his prior confidences he had concerning God? In Job's friends' restoration at the end, what do they make of their prior confidences they had concerning God? Listen, at the end of the book of Job, no one is left at the end of suffering of the book of Job clinging to their prior confidences. The things that they were absolutely confident about in the middle of the suffering, nobody's clinging to those things anymore. What Job thought he was dealing with ended up not being what he was actually dealing with at all concerning God. And what Job's friends thought they were dealing with concerning God and Job ended up not being what they were actually dealing with at all. So again, what are we to make of all of this confidence at the scene of suffering? How about this? A few things to think about. Being confident about what you think you are seeing and witnessing might not mean you are right. Being confident does not necessarily equal being right. I can't tell you how many times in the trial of the last year where I was so confident about what God was doing and what I should do, and I wasn't right. Confidence does not translate into being right or being correct. And it's true. For both Job and his friends. It's true for both the sufferer and the counselors. What I am confident about at the scene of suffering or in the trial could use being evaluated one more time. Maybe two. Maybe three. Right? Just because I feel very confident about what conclusions I've drawn, it doesn't mean that everything I'm saying is reliable. And just because I'm confident about every conclusion that I've made, it doesn't mean that everything I say is trustworthy. It doesn't mean everything I say is helpful at the scene of suffering. And it doesn't mean everything I say is to be unquestioningly received by the ones who hear it. 
Do you understand that? <laughs> and if I'm absolutely confident that I'm right and you don't agree with me, how will I see you? Well, you're an obstacle. Perhaps you're, a, you're unteachable. All right, so what is the message not? Here's what the message is not. Don't be confident about anything. That's not it. Don't be, don't, don't be confident about the gospel. No, don't be, no, that's not what we're saying. Don't be confident about theological truth you know to be true. That's not what we're saying. Be confident about what you know with your Bible open is true about God. You may have questions about it, but don't, don't lose your confidence in the gospel that God is good in Jesus Christ, that God is sovereign over all things, that God loves his children and so forth. Be confident about those undeniable facts. You may need help from your friends to remember what all those things are that you should be confident about, but at least be willing to question how confident you are about some unknown factors at the scene of suffering. What if, what if Job was filled with statements like this from Job? Guys, I don't, I don't know for sure, but... but but I'm wondering about fill in the blank. Guys, what, what do you think? What, what would the book of Job be like if his friends said back to him, you know what, here's what I've been thinking, Let, but let's consider this together prayerfully. I might be wrong. So, be unwaveringly confident about the truth of the gospel at the scene of suffering. Be, be unwaveringly confident about what God says that he has achieved through his son's death for those who trust in him. Never doubt that. Do not lack confidence in that. But at least be willing to test your confidence in some other areas of thought at the scene of suffering. Because what does the book of Job put on display? The book of Job puts on display two very confident parties who cannot find common ground at all about what God is doing. Their confidences, which need to be questioned on both sides, keep them from each other. And Job should rethink what he is confident about and his friends should rethink what they are confident about should we not be prepared to do the same? Being confident doesn't equal being right. It doesn't equal being helpful. It doesn't equal being believable. Are you concerned about your confidence? Okay, so concerned about character, comfort, control, and confidence, and I'm sure we could think of more. What I would like to do is... Um, because I, I promised to, to finish early today or on time. So here's what I want to do for the last part. I have some books to recommend for you to consider. Um, you can get these. Some of these are in our, uh, back in our bookshelves back there. If not, you'll probably have to order them. But I'm going to give you some recommendations. You can see them there on the worksheet that I gave to you down at the bottom. The one that, uh, that I've read over the last year that has helped me the most that, that actually was, was life-saving at points 
is um, Paul Tripp's book called Suffering. Um, I believe dust jackets are from the devil. And so I just take them all off. So, that's, so if you're like looking for a gray book on the shelf, it's, you'll never find it because it has a dust jacket and you need to repent of that and take it off. Um, the, the, the thing, I'll give you a nugget from this. Very readable. He's gone through intense suffering, physical suffering. The nugget that I walked away with uh, from that is he gave me a category for realizing that you can trouble your own trouble. Um, you're in trouble, you're in a trial, you, you've got trouble, but we tend to trouble our own trouble then. And that, the goal would be to not, to, <laughs> to not do that. Um, did not Job trouble his own trouble and did not his friends trouble his trouble? Um, there's just some really helpful things like that to be thinking about in his book. Um, what's another one? Oh, this little one. Um, a Book of Comfort for Those in Sickness by P.B. Power. Um, I believe it used to be called a really weird title. What was the title it used to be called? The Sick Man's Book or something? The Sick Man's Comfort Book is what it used to be called in 1876. And they thought, well, maybe we could make it a little more palatable. Um, this little book is, has been a gem. Uh, a nugget in this one that, uh, you can, that's been super helpful for both Kim and I um, is that your usefulness changes in suffering, but you never become useless in your suffering. So if you are a believer, um, I can tell you my wife who um, is so um, engaged with people, so active in our home, always on the go, to watch her... Um, be reduced to slowly transferring from bed to her chair to back to her bed, and she hasn't driven for weeks and months. And to she she found that to be particularly helpful. God has changed my usefulness, but she is not useless. And he has some great illustrations in there on that um, that are helpful to think about. Um, great little book, very helpful. Um, Another one, um, this one, Torn to Heal by Mike Leakey. Torn to Heal, God's Good Purpose in Suffering. Um, the central claim of this book, he says, is that God uses the tearing, tearing like paper, of suffering to provide healing, a healing that goes far beyond the wound that is claiming your immediate attention. There's a wound that's getting your immediate attention, but God is tearing you to heal you at deeper levels. Wow. That's, that's a, a, a jagged but comforting little pill to swallow once you get it down. Um, he says, my passion is that the church might learn to suffer well by modeling deep and abiding faith in God in the midst of suffering. I want to see a church that chooses suffering over ungodliness. That's good stuff. Very good stuff. Um, Comfort the Grieving, Ministering God's Grace in Times of Loss by Paul, I don't know how to say his last name, Taudges, T-A-U-T-G-E-S, um, primarily written maybe more towards the pastor, elder type person, but you would benefit greatly. Listen to what he said here. Um, we move from asking why to asking what. That's a good one to remember. To move in your suffering from asking why to asking what. Not why is this happening to me, but what. And he means this, what do you want me to learn in this time of trial, Lord? In what ways do I need to learn to trust you? And he gave this great illustration. Worrying will hinder your faith. 
cloud your focus and rob us of all our ability to see clearly the good works of the Lord. Worrying brings us no benefit. Someone has well said, worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Wow. Nuggets like that are, I mean, you can hold on to that stuff and like, yeah, I don't need to sit in the rocking chair. I need to make some progress here. This little pamphlet written by my friend Joel James down in South Africa uh, is called Help, I Can't Handle All These Trials. So I quickly grabbed that one and read it in about 15 minutes. This is great. This is a a little pamphlet he put together uh, from the series that he took his church through on Job. Um, And here's a quote in it that would be give you a sense of what it is like. Um, He says, Is a divine explanation as to why God allowed your crisis the key to handling calamity? Is that that the key? Is an explanation regarding how your disaster fits into the overplan the secret to a trusting response? You might think so, but the book of Job reveals how wrong you are. From chapter 3 on, Job begged, plead with, and railed against God, but in the end, Job's fury was silenced. His questions vanished. It's just not the key to your suffering or the explanations. Um, Another one, this one by David Pallison, who recently went home to be with the Lord after pancreatic cancer. God's grace in your suffering. He says, uh, um, this was his, this book is from his, um, he spoke at uh, Piper's 2005 Desiring God conference on suffering and the sovereignty of God and his message became this book. Um, He says, God will surprise you. He will make you stop. You will struggle. He will bring you up short. You will hurt. God will take his time. You will grow in faith and in love, and he will deeply delight you. You will find the process harder than you ever imagined and better than you ever imagined. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. At the end of the long road, you will come home at last. And he found that to be true in the last month, I believe, or two. Good little book. He primarily walks through the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Uh, so he, that, that's an interesting way to bring comfort. Um, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God. This is Piper's uh, collection of messages in chapter form from that 2005 Desiring God conference. Uh, chapter 2 is really helpful, a very robust theological presentation of the sovereignty of God over the wrongs that others commit against us. It's about the human's will under God's will. Do we have free will? Uh, he, in chapter 2, I think his name is Mike Talbot or Mark Talbot, um, addresses open theism. He critiques it. Um, there is a chapter in it, in my opinion. I'm not quite done with it yet. I have about two more chapters. There is a chapter that is problematic in it from my vantage point. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But just know you need to keep your eyes open with any book when you write. And it's not by Piper, that chapter. It's by one of his guys and that spoke at the conference. Anyway, one more. This one. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. I know many of you have read this one. Here's the nugget you get from this one. It's right on the very inside of his, it's, and it's dedicated to his wife, Sarah, and to his little daughter, Sylvia, that they lost at birth. Hard is hard. Hard is not bad. Hard is just hard. The trial is hard. It's difficult. That doesn't mean it's bad. Super helpful. Um, he's trying to help his church re- figure out how lament fits in, lamenting, 
weeping, being sorrowful fits into worship of God. Um, we have a book in our Bible that's all about lamentations. Um, the church in the United States, the evangelical church, we don't get this. We don't suffer very much. Um, and he's trying to discover this. Some really, really hopeful things that he sees about lamenting. He'll teach you about what biblical lament is. There are some applications in it that will make you uncomfortable about how he and his church practice it. Um, so you just got to take it with a grain of salt. But I don't know very many books on lament. And here's one. And read it carefully and wisely. Um, all right. So those are some books for you to consider. Do you guys have any questions? Do you have any clarifications you want? Do you want um, to offer any protest? Shake a fist at anything that I've said before we finish up today? You guys are so easy. No? Well, then today, write this day down. We're going to finish early. Somebody please call my wife and tell her because she admonished me finish early. I did, honey. Okay. Oh, she's probably live streaming. Sorry. I just gave it all away. We're going to close in prayer now. Um, Father in heaven, thank you so much for being able to study this book and to be able to think about these things. I thank you for these eight books, and there, I know there are many others on suffering that could be looked at. Jerry Bridges on trusting God uh, is such a helpful one. Lord, but thank you for men and women throughout church history who are able to help us think about um, the scene of suffering. More importantly, to think about you at the scene of suffering. Above all, we, we love your Bible because of what it teaches us about you at the scene of suffering. So Lord, help us, train us, disciple us. Help us to train and disciple and love each other well so that we can suffer well at the scene of suffering together. Thank you most of all for the suffering that brings us the most fulfillment, which is the suffering of your son at the cross. That you would even have a category from eternity past, that he would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that you would have suffering play such a crucial, central part um, of our existence as a human race and the history of what you're doing on this planet says something about you and what you think about suffering. Are we to be ones who would reject it and not want it then? when you tasted it like you did in your son. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you and we ask you to help us to suffer well like you did. And we ask it in your precious name, amen. Thanks everyone for being here, Lord willing. We'll finish up one more time next week. We'll see you.